You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I think there's ego involved. I think Scotty was a little disappointed with the way he was performing portrayed in it as selfish but again Grant it's business and we only get to play for so long and Scotty was going through contract negotiations and wasn't happy and he handled it the best way he thought he could handle it at the time with with what he knew about his game and his situation so he did what's best for Scotty would I have handled it differently yes I would have would you have handled it differently maybe but but that's what business is and we got to do what's best for us Great to have you aboard. If you don't like that, today's podcast is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento, locally owned for over 20 years. Whether it's leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing, New Works Plumbing is a full service plumbing solution no matter how small or how large your plumbing problem they've got a fix for you and remember their expert technicians are available 24 7 for all of your plumbing needs just go to newworksplumbing.com n-e-w-w-r-x-plumbing.com my guest today born in montreal played his college basketball at st john's began his nba career in dallas played there from 85 to 90 had a short stint in sacramento and then went to europe and then found himself on the Chicago Bulls for several years, including their final three championships, and then ended his career back in Sacramento. He's now the longtime radio analyst for the Bulls. It is Bill Wennington. Bill, all I can say is you have come a long way, my friend, from Muttontown Road. Yes, I have. And it's, uh, I tell you what, Grant, it's been a lot of fun, a great trip, a lot of challenges and bumps in the road, as you know NBA careers usually have. But somehow I, I've managed to stay involved in the game and having a lot of fun doing it. I grew up just a couple of miles from where you went to high school at Lutheran. That was an unbelievable program. So how on earth do you go from Canada to Lutheran High School on Long Island? Well, my my parents had been divorced and my mother had moved to Long Island. So when I was 16 in 1979, I, I moved down to Long Island with my mother from Montreal. And... I was playing basketball. Obviously, I was 6'10". I was a pretty good player in Canada. So my mother did a little research and found, and found Lutheran. And I was actually supposed to go to, if I went to public school, I would have went to Half Hollow Hills East. But she had some friends and said, you know what, why don't you call up Lutheran and see what happened? And Bob McKillop had just started coaching there. And he invited me out to summer camp to, I guess, to try me out to see if I was 
what they were saying I was and got me into the school and, and started working on me. And, and really he, I, I got to credit Bob McKillop with uh, turning my game around. I was six foot 10 at 16 years old and I was just tall. I remember going to that summer camp, Grant, and I thought I was pretty good in Canada because in Canada I was. Sure. It was different up there at that time. But uh, I went to camp and, and uh, we had a kid on the team that was a, uh, a year younger than me. So I was going into 11th grade. He was going into uh, 10th grade and Daryl Carter and Daryl Carter was like three inches shorter than I was. And I remember just chasing him all over the place. He kicked my butt. Well, and it made me realize that I wasn't as good as I thought I was, but Bob McKillop took that into to mind and kind of reshaped me and molded me into the man and the player I, I became. Well, you went from Lutheran to St. John's, and I'm curious, Ryan, what year was it in college, or maybe it was in high school, where you had legitimate pro aspirations, where either you felt that you could get to that level or somebody that you had great respect for told you, hey, you know what, you keep working hard, you're going to be on the big stage one day. I uh, Coming from Canada, I didn't start thinking about the NBA until I got to college, and, you know, because it, it just wasn't big. I, was, I thought about before that I was thinking about the NHL <laughs> because I played hockey till I was twelve, and basketball was just something I had to, could do because I couldn't play basketball anymore. But it, it obviously it worked out very well. But it was probably junior year where I in college where I really started to think, wow, if I keep working hard and I push myself, I could could maybe get into the NBA and, and make things happen. I used to love going to all of the ECAC tournaments at Madison Square Garden, the holiday festivals. I used to love the St. John-Syracuse rivalry, the Georgetown rivalry, all of those great moments playing at Madison Square Garden. What's your fondest memory of being at St. John's? Obviously playing for Lou Conisecker. He he is just a great coach, uh, father figure. He still calls me about four times a year to check in and see how I'm doing. Ask me about my wife, my son Rob, and just just making sure that everything's going all right and if there's still anything he can do for me. And it, it's just been a really great relationship throughout the years. It, it's, it's kept in touch. And that, and that means a lot to me as a, as a human to have someone that cares that much about me, not just on the court, but off the court and how things have be, been going. At St. John's, though, playing-wise, playing at Madison Square Garden in the Mecca of basketball, it was phenomenal. And especially for a kid coming from Montreal, and, and not seeing basketball that way and going to the garden and especially the seasons that we had at St. John's being so well. We were New York's team in 1985 when we went to the Final Four. The Knicks weren't playing well. The, the Rangers weren't playing that well that year either. So we had 20,000 St. John's fans at Madison Square Garden every time we played. And obviously the Big East was, was huge back then with Georgetown, Syracuse, Providence, Boston College were big names back then. It was, Pitt had just come into the league a year before. So just phenomenal crowds and, and basketball players coming in and coaches in the Big East. So it was so much fun to play there. And, and, and being at the Garden was, was really amazing at that time. And, and honestly, Grant, that, that's really what helped me and prepared me for the NBA. You end up in the NBA uh, for Dick Mata and – 
while you were in Sacramento, that's when I got my first uh, taste of Dick, and I used to call his offense the prevent offense, uh, and it was funny <laughs> because I, I, had, I, had, I had Spud Webb on the podcast uh, a little while ago, and I was just talking to Spud about how frustrating it was for a guy like Spud who just loved to run up and down the court. You know, Dick would yell at him, you know, if you took a shot, if there was anything more than four or five seconds left on the shot clock. But you go from St. John's into that atmosphere with Dick Mott and some of the players they had on that what was that first year what do you remember the most about your rookie year in Dallas well I remember rookie year now that year Detlef Shrimp was drafted the first round sixth or seventh pick and then myself at 16 and Uwe Blob at 17 and then we had a Carol Keeling and a couple other guys that came into camp I remember back then Grant there were like 10 rounds in the, in the, in the NBA and so we had a lot of guys, but I remember in training camp when all of a sudden guys started getting cut that, wait a minute, this is different. This is a business mm-hmm. and you got to lock down and you got to be prepared. And fortunately St. John's did that. And obviously playing with Chris Mullen at St. John's helped me to work hard. But I remember the ups and downs of, of playing for, for Dick Mata and how he wasn't a fan of rookies that much. So and your playing time was up and down and, 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 and you're right. He was very much his way or the highway, an old school coach. And the, the offense was slowed down. Offense, we ran kind of high post, center high post offense. And we had Mark Aguirre who would post up and was a great low post player. So we got the ball into Mark a lot. And then Rolando Black, Blackman was our guard along with uh, Brad Davis and Derek Harper at the, at the point guard positions. But it was a slow offense. It was a deliberate offense. And I, I certainly understand, Spud, when you come from a program or, or a player that gets up and down the floor, that it could be very frustrating <laughs> to play in that system. And then you end up in Sacramento uh, for a very short period of time. So I got to ask you, did that one experience of Sacramento force you out of the NBA over to Europe? Like, Was it such a bad experience that you're like, the hell with this, I got to leave the country and go play in freaking Italy for a couple of years? Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you. That is the first and only year that I lost in my career. That it was and it was frustrating. I don't like losing, and it was difficult. If you remember that year, Grant, we won 25 games and only one game on the road. Oh, I remember. I, hey, let me let me stop you there. <laughs> let, let me. You 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 probably are not aware of this because you were we were on that Bach 111, right? And it was the first year that the Kings had their plane. And I'll never forget yep. this. The last road game of the year, we're walking off the plane up front and. Dick goes, and, we, and, the, and then you got, you're right, you, <laughs> the Kings were 1-40 and 40 on the road that year, and we're getting off from our last road trip, and Dick goes, damn, it's damn good thing we had our own plane this year. We may have gone 0-41 on the road. And I was just like, you know, me and Gary Gerald, and you remember Jonesy, Bill Jones, you know, we were just laughing our yeah. asses off when Dick said, man, it's a good thing we had our own plane this year. We may have gone 0-41. Oh, my God. Hey, it, it, listen, the Kings actually, because it carried over over two seasons, ended up losing 43 consecutive road games. So I'm, I'm with you. For someone like yourself and most most guys hate losing, but that had to be the worst experience you could ever imagine. It, it, it really was. And I got traded for Rodney, Rodney McCray and a couple of tr- a draft pick or something. And Dick brought me over to teach the other guys his system and kind of have me as a guy that knew the system and could run it. And I, I think the Eric Lechner was there. Ralph Sampson was there. <laughs> 
obviously Wayman Tisdale was there, a great player. And he, he wanted me to run his offense because he knew what I was. I mean, he knew I was a guy that was going to come in and, and run the offense and execute things properly. And I remember I started off the season. I was starting. And about 10 games in, he, 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 he's after a game. He sits us down and he's lambasting us. But he's just killing us in the locker room. And he starts going through the locker room and pointing at every player why they're there and what they're supposed to be doing. And he gets to me, he goes, Wennington, I traded for you. I just got you here because I wanted you to help these guys learn the learn the offense. You're not even supposed to be playing, but God damn it, you're the best <laughs> center I have right now. That's all I got. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of, vote of confidence, Coach. And then it was a few a few games later, we weren't doing well. We were in Houston, and he changed the lineup, and he started playing all the rookies, Dwayne Coswell, Lionel Simmons, Anthony Bonner. He said, you know what? And he told us the locker room, I'm making a change because I might as well play the guys that are going to be here next year. Wow. And, yeah, I still played. I got in games, but he started, you know, relying on the young guys and started to really develop, try to develop the younger younger guys to get them in and hopefully get them get them going. So, but it was it was tough. And it really, it's hard to lose that much and we had guys on the team that had been there for a few years and hadn't won and unfortunately for them I don't want to say they got used to it or accepted it but it was just much more tolerable for them and it really wasn't for me so when the Kings decided they didn't want to offer me an extension I I thought about it and the the New York Knicks at the time were the only other team that were interested in me going to camp but I got a offer over in Italy so I and it was a guaranteed deal for two years. And I said, you know what? My wife, Anne, is pregnant. And, you know, I'd already played six years in the NBA. And at the time, six years was kind of the average career for an NBA player. I said, you know, who knows what's going to happen? I might as well take the money and see what happens. And I went over to Italy for two years and, and it worked out. I, I it really, it helped me regain the love and the passion for the game. Because it was honestly going over to Italy. It was almost like going back to college with, with the level you're playing at. Yes, there were some great players over there that I played against, but overall the talent level is not the NBA. And it's a much more structured, you play two games a week. And it, it was it was almost like going back to college. So I really got the, the love of the game back, the passion uh, that I'd lost in, in Sacramento that first year. And it, nothing to do with Sacramento. Sacramento's a great city. I loved it. Actually, I tried like heck after the second my second stint to stay in Sacramento because I liked it so much. But And, and also playing over in, in – in Italy, uh, Grant, it helped my game because you're allowed to touch the ball off the rim. So it really got me playing much more aggressively offensive rebounding. And it got me doing a, a couple things different than that and helped me mature as a player as well. The thing I remember the most from that season in Sacramento was a three-game road trip in January against three expansion teams. You started the road trip off in Orlando. Your team scored 83 points. Then the very next night in Miami, expansion team, 83 points. And then two nights later in Charlotte, expansion team, you lose 101 to 59. And if you remember, we flew home right after the game and Dick had quit on the plane ride. And the story has it that you guys, when I say you guys, the players on the back portion of that small little jet, talked him out of it. And I've never asked anyone on that team until now, why the hell did you talk Dick out of quitting? You should have just let him quit. Yeah, but you know what, though? And if you're a player, and, and Grant, you know this too, coaching changes midseason are never good. That's true. Very true. Not, not, not in the middle of the season. 
the next year maybe it works, but if you if the coach leaves in the middle of the day, you're basically throwing that season away. Do you remember? The, do you remember that though on the plane? Do you remember that night? Yeah, I I, I don't remember specifics, but I remember him not being happy and being on the plane and going up and saying, hey, coach, come on. You know, I know I, we know it's bad. We got to figure something out. And and I think that's what kind of brought on, you know, things where, where he started to make some changes. But uh, unfor- unfortunately, you had a, a, a different team there, a team that was kind of not a defense-oriented team. It was offensive. I mean, Wayman Tisdale is one of the best offensive players I've ever played with and just had so much talent in the low post. But and we had a lot of young guys, and it was it's it was tough. You're playing against some good teams, and some. And you remember the NBA back then, especially in the Eastern Conference, was physical as heck. And Detroit was playing their bully ball or the bad boys basketball. They really started, and they started to take over the league. And then even in the in the Western Conference, the Lakers were good. Their still Showtime was still going on, and at the tail end of their Showtime, but. It, it was it was it was a tough league to play in, and we had a lot of guys that Dick was trying to to kind of coddle along, and and unfortunately his ways didn't resonate well with the young players who maybe weren't used to a coach who was in your face and and uh, you know really kind of that that stern tough love type of type of coach. You go to Europe. You talk about playing over there. Had you given up? on returning to the NBA or was at that point of your life, you talked about your wife, you talked about the guaranteed money, everything else. And it was, okay, we're going to do this. But at that point, when you were in Europe, did you still have aspirations in playing in the NBA at one point? Yes, I, I definitely did. And I figured I had to go take the guaranteed money right now and go over there and play. And it, and it was tough. It was different. I, I knew uh, one player a little bit over there it was Gusto Benelli, who was started with the, the starting center on the team before I got there, and he and then he just basically he still started. We played we played two seven footers at the same time on our team. It was a very good team. Etere Messina was the head coach, mm. and, and Etere was very good. And fortunately, I'd played for Dick Mata and Bob McKillop, so I I understood his passion and his vocal cords for the game. Sure, <laughs> and how he it got in your face, but. I knew that there was always a, a time that I tried to get back into the NBA. And after my second year in Italy uh, with Bologna, uh, we won the Italian championship. I said, yeah, all right, let me try to get back into the NBA. I went to summer league that year with the Portland Trailblazers. And I, I did fairly well. And obviously, I caught the eye of the Bulls. But the Portland offered me a back to – and Rick Adelman was the head coach. Mm. And – they liked me there, and I did a good job. But they they only they didn't offer me any guarantees to come back to camp. And they had just signed that year Chris Dudley as their starting center. And I, I played – I want to say it was a Stephen Hunter or Stephen. was a, the young rookie they had just drafted. I knew they were very high on him. And I played well, and I thought I had played, I played Stephen. But, you know, he was the first-round draft pick. And, you know, I, I knew you know Chris Dudley was going to play. They want to try and bring this, this young kid along. So – Chicago offered me a one-month guaranteed contract, so I took that. And I tell people now, it's like they, I came in on a one-month contract. I'm like the thing that wouldn't go away because they can't get rid of me. <laughs> uh, I'm still there. <laughs> hey, you talk about Chris Dudley, worst free throw still, shooter. Still there. Chris Dudley, worst free throw shooter I've ever seen. I mean, gosh, it was painful watching him shoot free throws, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it really was. And it wasn't like people talk about Dennis Robin not shooting free, free throws. And it was Dennis just didn't care. 
when we were playing a game in Chicago and Dallas Mavericks came into town and Don Nelson was the head coach and they started doing a hack-a-shack to, to Dennis Rodman. I think he made, you know, like 14 or 16 foul shots that game. And it was just a Dennis – Dennis was Dennis and didn't care about foul shots, so he just got to the line and threw the ball up there <laughs> and, and tried to go get an offensive rebound. But when, when he really had to – when, when he t- really had to focus, he was, he was actually a, a pretty good foul shooter. So you end up in Chicago little at the time. Did you know how that would completely change your career path, your entire life? As you said, you're still there working with Chuck Swirsky on Bulls Radio. You worked with Neil Funk before that. But there's been so much talk about The Last Dance. I had Jason Hare on this program back in the fall, the director of The Last Dance. And, of course, you were featured on that uh, quite a bit. Was there anything after watching that 10-part documentary that surprised you? And I say that only in this sense. You lived it. You knew everything. You probably know all the stories. But was there anything that was portrayed in that documentary or anything that stood out that either you didn't like or surprised you? No. I I thought it was pretty accurate of the way it happened. Again, a lot of things are perspective, and a lot of it's Michael's perspective of what happened. And and that's the way it happened. You know, and Michael even said it's tough. He was tough on guys. And you know what? He was because he wanted to win. And I get it. I understood it. Uh, I came from a background of coaches that uh, pushed me to excel and, and push myself to get better every day. And I understood what Michael was doing when he came back. Uh, he wanted he wanted to win. He wanted to be the best player on the best team and win championships. And he also understood that he couldn't do it by himself. He was in, in Chicago seven years before they started winning championships, and he was the leading scorer, the MVP, and all that and couldn't win a championship until he started trusting his teammates to do their job and to help him win. So he was going to make damn sure in practice that you were pushing yourself and that he could rely on you in a game. And if he couldn't rely on you in practice, he was going to make your life miserable and you were basically going to get run out of town. Hmm. Wow. So it, it, it's funny to me, Grant, if you talk to players and they say, you know, it was really hard to play with Michael. Well, and, and, and I get it. If you're a player that's not used to that or you're a player that kind of likes to take it easy during practice and only push yourself during games, then you weren't going to be a Michael kind of guy because he, he needed to know that you were going to be there 100% of the time to back him up, to help him. If he had to pass you the ball in a pressure moment, were you going to be there to fight or are you going to run away? And it, it's tough. So it, it's always funny to me to listen to different guys talk about playing with Michael because I, I believe I understood it. I knew what he was trying to do and trying to make me a better player because not because he just wanted me to be a better player. Obviously, he wanted that, but because he wanted to win and he needed me to be a better player to win. So it, it's just interesting to know, understand what kind of guys liked playing with him and what kind of guys had a tough time playing with him. Bill, I've heard you say in the past that the chemistry – on that final year, the sixth championship was as good as anything you had ever experienced. I think you may have said it may have been similar to what you experienced with Lou at St. John's, you know, in that final four year. But with that being said, has it surprised you? Did it surprise you when we heard the bickering from Pippen and Grant and, and some others? Did that surprise you? Is that ego involved? What is that? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think guys – are holding on to things. And, you know, did they feel slighted at times? Yes. Could Horace and or Scotty be, would have been better players or all-stars or bigger names on other teams? I don't know. 
Maybe they would have. Would they have played more? Yes. Could they have been the, the number one player? Scotty definitely could have been. Scotty at the time, and still today, I still think is one of the most underrated players that played in the NBA because how good he was. But none of us would be where we are without what Michael did for us. And so I, I think there's ego involved. I think Scotty was a little disappointed with the way he was per- portrayed in it as selfish. But again, Grant, it's business. And we only get to play for so long. And Scotty was going through contract negotiations and wasn't happy. And he handled it the best way he thought he could handle it at the time with, with what he knew about his game and his situation. So he did what's best for Scotty. Would I have handled it differently? Yes, I would have. Would you have handled it differently? Maybe, but, but that's what business is. And we got to do what's best for us. And we understood that we're a better team with Scotty Pippen. And we all supported Scotty and said, hey, Scotty, you, you know, you do what you got to do, but, you know, we need you to win. And as soon as you – the quicker you figure things out, we, we want you back here. So we supported him in his decisions, and he ended up missing a good chunk of time with everything that he did. But uh, we also understood that we're a much better basketball team with Scotty Pippen. So we just hoped he resolved the situation, got everything back, and got back on the floor with us. I say Phil Jackson, you say what? I believe he's one of the best coaches ever. And and I played with for some great coaches, obviously. Lou Conasek at St. John's was, was phenomenal. I played the late great Jack Donahue with the Canadian Olympic team. Bob McKillop is a phenomenal coach, and what he's done at Davidson has been terrific. But Phil had a knack for just understanding egos and keeping everyone playing on the same page. He really kept uh, one through 12. One, he was able to manage, you know, Egos of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and Horace Grant, get them all to play the same game to win the game and not necessarily for their own stats. But then at the same time, able to keep uh, Steve Kerr, Tony Kukoc, Bill Wennington, and, and Dickie Simpkins, Randy Brown, who come, are all coming off the bench and all want to play more, happy with the roles that we have. And he's just really one of the best at that. And, his X and O's is, is, is the same as other people's. The tribal offense, I think, is great. I text, obviously, Tex Winter was phenomenal getting that, and Phil really understood it and understood how to teach it to us. But his, his strength was just knowing players and getting them all to play together for one cause and, and teaching us different life lessons and the balance of life and basketball to keep us in top shape and both mentally and physically to play every night. Did it ever get monotonous traveling with the Bulls? I mean, it was like, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones pulling up for a concert wherever you went. Did that, did that ever get tiring? Uh, a little bit because it, it was hard to go out and just kind of relax and because you're always on stage. Uh, there was always a lot of people around. It just, Grant, I don't know how we would have done it today with the cell phones no and cameras. And it, it, no chance. Every, everywhere you went. Yeah. We, we'd go to restaurants. And Michael and Scotty would be in there, and all of a sudden it'd be a thousand people outside the door. And this is before cell phones. Wow. I mean, yes, there wow. were cell phones, but it's not texting and social media. So it's basically word of mouth and people calling to you. And there's a thousand people sitting out trying to get into this restaurant or outside in the street to try and say hello, and just to get a glimpse of of, of the team or you know, obviously let's call it what it is, Michael and Scotty, and and Dennis uh, coming out of the restaurant. It was it was just unbelievable. So it, it was tough just to kind of relax. You kind of had to get away. And you know, I found a little place here in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the summertime to just kind of 
to get away from it because even you know, even Chicago, which is a great city and the fans were, were phenomenal, it's, you couldn't go out to dinner because you're constantly people coming up, how you doing it, and it and they're all meaning good. It's it, and it's great, but you know by the time you finish your dinner, it's been a a five hour meal. How did the broadcasting opportunity present itself after your playing days? Because as you said, you ended actually your career back with Sacramento. How did that all start with the Bulls and being a broadcaster? Well, I, I, I had networked very hard the last six, seven years of my career because I understood the end was, was near or coming. So in Chicago during, during those championship years, I just made myself available to everyone. Everyone in the organization, if they needed a player or someone to do something, I would do it. Uh, if uh, the media came in after practice, and I would stay later and come back out at the end. And anyone that didn't get a bite from Michael or Scotty, if, if they still needed something, I'd make sure I was available to, to come out and do it. And I, met, I, I met the cameraman. I met the producers. I met the on-air talent. I talked to them. And I did the same thing when I got to Sacramento the second time, my last year there. I actually remember I even did a game with you one day. Yes, you when, did. During the playoffs. Yes, you did. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. My degree was in communications, television, radio production at St. John's. And uh, at the time, I was thinking more along uh, behind the scenes, but apparently people half understand what I'm saying when I speak. So it, it, worked, out, it worked out so I could uh, talk, talk behind a microphone. So, And it just worked out. I took the first year off after I left Sacramento. I, I, like I said, I really tried. I went into uh, is it, uh, Thompson general manager at the time or the president right and tried to see if i can get something jim thomas right Uh, jim thomas yeah tried to see if i could get uh, you know something either in the community or or broadcasting doing doing anything because i thought sacramento was just a great little town and i I love the outdoors as you know i ride motorcycles i had a couple friends that uh, i rode my motorcycles with up there and there was nothing available so i said all right well i'm going back to chicago because i know i have a home there went back and took that first year off and just did everything with my son. And the next year I, I went to training camp a couple of times just to watch the Bulls and see the Bulls. And they said, what are you doing? And sideline job opened up a little bit. So I did some sideline reporting. And then the, when the radio, and then they asked me to be off the court mentor for Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry when they, they got in. So I was the team mentor and started the player development program for the Bulls back in 2003. And then when the radio gig opened up, when John Paxson uh, took the GM job. They just asked me if I wanted to take a spot. And for me, it was a no-brainer. You know, I remember talking to you when you had that role with the Bulls. And again, I, I say this in all due respect, you were dealing with kids. Like, you you, yes. were, you were dealing, that was, I mean, I was blown away when you mentioned some of the, the, the names on that roster and how young they were and how raw they were and how, and again, I'm not being disrespectful. They were as far as the word professional as you could be because they didn't know any better. And you really were the guy that helped them bridge from their childhood, adolescence, and again, I'm not exaggerating here, into being professionals. How hard of a, how hard was that, seriously? It, it, it was difficult at times because they just didn't understand everything. And here you got these 18 year old kids, Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry, both 18 years old when they're drafted uh, coming on and playing. Now they, they have some money. They have a lot of people around them. So we tried to teach them, uh, get them to understand that there's a lot of street smart people out there that were going to take advantage of them in all different ways off the court, uh, tried to teach them some good business sense. We had some business people come in and, and talk to them 
and try to get them to understand good investments, bad investments. We had different people come in to help them organize their time. And so they're scheduling so that they're not uh, burning the candle at both ends, uh, so to speak. We, we tried to have some good role models come in and talk to them. One, one of the stories I like to, and they just, they just didn't know Tyson Chandler had, had gotten a ride to practice one day and he left his keys at home and didn't have keys to his apartment. So he had to call a locksmith to come and open up his, his house for him. And unfortunately, the locksmith couldn't get there for like three hours. And Tyson had somewhere to go, and it was, it was tough. So here's this kid, this 18, 19-year-old kid from Compton. And he's like, well, I got to go home. I'm just going to go throw a brick through the window <laughs> and, and, get, and, and, and get into my house, get my keys to get my car to go to this thing I want to go to. I'm like, Tyson, no, let's not do that. I said, let's go. I'll, I'll take you over. Let's go. And we'll see. Maybe you left the window open. So we drive over. And all the doors are locked. All the windows are locked. And he's like, ah, man. And he goes and he's starting to look in his bushes. And I'm like, what are you doing? He pulls out this big brick. <laughs> and he starts to I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just going to throw it to the window. I said, Tyson, that's not what you do. I said, oh, hold on a second. I said, and I didn't want to do it. I said, all right, let's see what we can do. So I go over and I, I pop the screen off, make a little hole in the screen. I'm able to pop the screen off. And I get, I had uh, a little knife on me and I was able to jimmy the, the window open, open the window, get in. And I get the window wide open and he's looking at me. He goes, I can't believe this. You're teaching me, a kid from Compton, how to break into a house. <laughs> and I get in, he, he, he scuttles through the window, gets in the window, comes out the outdoor. I put the screen back on and he goes, oh my God, you can't even tell that we were here. He's like, yeah. I said, there's, there's ways to do things. And he's like, how'd you know how to do that? Said, oh my God. No. <laughs> so he's like, now you don't have to worry about it. He was like, oh my gosh, I thought I was going to have to get someone to fix the window. Said, nah, don't worry about it. I said, just don't forget your keys anymore. <laughs> I love it. You know, uh, uh, last thing here, I had Robbie Gold on the podcast and he talked just about the love of Chicago. He still obviously lives there in the offseason now. And being in a city that is so vibrant with sports, you know, like yourself, Robbie loved the Bulls, the Blackhawks, he's a huge Cubs fan. The experience that you've had, I mean, you were the creme de la creme with the Bulls, but I actually worked in central Illinois. I worked in Decatur when the Bears won their Super Bowl. So I know I was around for that experience, and I couldn't believe that. Do you pinch yourself sometimes? And I really mean that when you look back at everything and the fact that you're still in that amazing sports city and all of the great experiences that you've had? Oh, Grant, every day. It's it's phenomenal. I go and do speaking engagements and talk to high schools, church groups, and, and businesses. And, you know, I start off with, you know, obviously an introduction, but then I say, the reason I'm here is because the Bulls won three championships and I was part of that. I'm not in Sacramento. And I, again, I love Sacramento. I'm not in Sacramento. I'm not in Dallas, where we had both good teams. Dallas, we had a great team, went to the Western Conference Finals in 1988. But I'm not there. I'm in Chicago because I was part of the, the, those teams. And what that has done for me to be a part of it is absolutely amazing. And I'm, I'm honored to have been a part of it. I am happy for the coaching that I had earlier on in my career through high school and college that prepared me and, and taught me to work hard so that that could happen. But every day I know that being a part of those teams has kept me employed 
in this game. And it, it's, it's a great game to be a part of. And say what you want about the changes of the game. And I don't agree with all of them. I, I don't like the game as much as I used to like it. But it's still a phenomenal game. It's a great sport. And, and it's just great to be a part of it. And, you know, it's, it's all about timing. Mm-hmm. You, you see players come and go. And for some reason on one team, they don't do so well. And all of a sudden they get to another team and they have great careers because it's just about being in the right place at the right time. And I like to think it's, it's everything is, I control everything, but that's not the way it is. And I like to quote a Winston Churchill once that said, he goes, I find the harder I work, the luckier I get. And it's well, true. You work hard, you can get luckier and there is luck involved in everything you do. Well, I like the line, good things happen to good people and you're good people. And uh, you know how much I've loved, uh, our friendship and our association now going over 30 years and it's been fun man it's been great reminiscing uh, it's great catching up with you and hopefully uh, we can see you in the not too distant future uh, when you come down to South Florida or I'm in Chicago whatever the case may be but uh, again man it was just great talking to you well Grant absolutely and now that you've opened up that invitation I do live in Chicago and All-Star break is in February where the weather in Chicago is not bad. So expect me in February. <laughs> uh, don't wait too close to your phone on that one, okay? <laughs> we now move on to our Crowd Ultra Q&A. Just go to CrowdUltra.com. Sign up. It takes a minute. Maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. All right, let's get to today's questions. Dylan wants to know, is Giannis going to become a superstar like MJ, Kobe, and LeBron? Well, Dylan, he's already a superstar. Time will tell whether we can put him in that category. He will need more championships. But right now, he is one of the game's superstars. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. All right, Eric asked, what's your opinion on whether the A's and where they will go given the lack of support from the city of Oakland to keep them? Love the podcast. Eric I keep on hearing Vegas, Vegas, Vegas. It doesn't seem to me like the city of Oakland is going to be able to work this out. They lost the Raiders. They lost the Warriors. And now it looks like maybe the A's are the next to go. And, Eric, what a shame that is. What an absolute shame. I don't know for sure what's going on within the walls of the negotiations there in the city of Oakland, but it does not look good. Willie wants to know how the Olympics added too many events. Yeah, probably, but it doesn't bother me. Does it bother you? I mean, why not keep the dreams and aspirations of young men and women alive in sports that are less uh, promoted, less publicized, lesser-known sports? It doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm fine with that. Kevin asks, are you surprised Deshaun Watson is reporting to training camp? No, I'm not. I mean, he has not been suspended by the league or the Texans. He has signing bonuses or th- not signing bonuses, uh, bonuses to report, things of that nature. So, no. I'm really not surprised that he reporting to uh, training camp. All right, I got a couple of questions here. They're kind of on the same topic, so I'm going to lump them in. Pat asks, how do you feel about the NFL finding unvaccinated players 14K for violating protocol? Duncan asks, what's your take on the Vikings assistant Rick Dennison being fired for refusing COVID-19 vaccine? Nick says, do you expect players like DeAndre Hopkins to stop playing over the NFL's vaccine stance? Hey, this is the new norm, just like we went through the new norm after 9-11. And we're still dealing with that nearly 20 years later. So we're in year two of the pandemic, and things are different in our lives. We learn how to deal with this. And now comes different rules and regulations and what employers can and cannot do. 
They're going to try to protect their bottom line and their business and leagues like the NFL put in protocols to protect themselves. I personally, and this is not political, I don't understand why one would not get the vaccine. After all, it is free and, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of people in this country have done so. There have been horror stories from doctors in hospitals, from patients dying of COVID begging to take the vaccine in which they refused to or not refused to, but chose not to. And doctors telling them it's too late. It won't do anything for you. Again, I don't want to be political here. If you don't want to take the vaccine, then that is your personal choice. But there are ramifications for not doing so. And, you know, if DeAndre Hopkins really doesn't want to play in the NFL because he's against taking the vaccine, then don't play. Forfeit your money, forfeit your contract, and don't play. It's as simple as that to me. Alex wants to know, do you think Steve Nash's career has been largely forgotten about? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think anyone that watched the NBA during that era understands that Steve Nash was one of the best players uh, in the NBA. Minus a championship, but there are many great players that didn't win championships. All right. Chase asks, have you ever talked to Fred Warner? He seems like a great guy. I have not. I've heard that. And congratulations on his mammoth deal. Steven asked, do you agree or disagree with Jason Whitlock saying LeBron is to blame for no one caring about the USA basketball team and that they stink? Um, I don't agree with that. I do agree that LeBron has done a lot of damage to professional basketball in this country. I believe his hypocritical ways, uh, I think, has turned off a lot of people. I've talked to many people that have told me that. You know, I always go back to Mitch Album. Silence is compliance, but you can't be selective with your noise, not against hate. Well, LeBron is selective with his noise. He's hypocritical. And for someone that's got over 50 million followers on social media and thinks that he's judge and jury and, you know, he's got all the power in the world, well, he may feel that way and he may be very influential to a lot of people, but he's done a lot of harm, in my opinion, to professional basketball in this country. All right, let's move along. Casey wants to know, does trading Buddy Heal to the Lakers for a package, including Kyle Kuzma, sound good to you? Casey, stay tuned for Grant's rant. Ian wants to know, what do you think is the cause of the USA basketball team losing their first game since 2004? I don't think they take it as seriously as other countries around the world. I mean, look at all the players in the United States that are among the best players in the league. They're not playing in the Olympics. I think it's just this country doesn't take it anymore. They used to. And I know Jerry Colangelo would disagree with me, the chairman of USA Basketball and guy that I have a lot of respect for. I just don't think the players take it as seriously as players from other countries. I may be wrong, but that's just, you know, my opinion. Bryce wants to know, knowing of Sean Bradley, Mark Eaton, and Greg Knapp's tragic accidents, do you think riding a bike on the street should be seen as dangerous. Bryce, this is hard for me to answer because I don't own a bike. And I will tell you that Greg Knapp is somebody that I met, one of the very first people I met on the football field at Sacramento State when I moved in 1987. I have and had so much admiration and respect for Greg. I ran into Greg Knapp 
He was visiting a friend, and I ran into him at the Lifetime in Folsom right before the pandemic started. And I saw him at the gym, and we had a really nice chat, and we were talking about life. We were talking about where he was at in his life. He was on his way to Tahoe to visit friends for the weekend, he and his wife. And we talked for really probably 20 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, he said, hey, anytime you need me, you got my number, just give me a call. And I said, hey, Greg, it's great seeing you. Thank you very much. And that's the last time I I saw Greg, the last time uh, I spoke with him. Bryce, I will say this. Again, I don't own a bike, so I'm not maybe the right person to answer the question. I think being on a bicycle is a lot more dangerous than it ever was for the mere fact that there are so many people that are on their cell phones and are distracted when they're driving, okay? So I put two and two together, and I come up with four. I use common sense. It's not going away. Cycling is very popular, especially in many other countries around the world where it is the most common form of transportation. But yeah, I got to believe it's more dangerous now than it's ever been. Dominic wants to know, where does Giannis rank all time? You can't, the guy's in his mid-20s. Let it let it play out. He doesn't rank anywhere all time. He's still playing. He's not even in the midpoint of his career. Sam asked, do the Warriors and Pacers, they've discussed the Miles Turner trade. How do you think that would fit in with the Warriors? I like Miles Turner. I think he's a heck of a player. How would it fit in? I think anytime you get good players, then you become a better basketball team. I've always felt that was a pretty simple formula. It's time for Rant. Today's rant is brought to you by the Home Theater Company. Audio, video, and home theater. Go online, hometheatercompany.com. All right, the NBA draft is on Thursday, and I'm hearing all types of rumors with so many teams pretty much on the Eastern Conference, the Western Conference, big names, lesser names, and, of course, I'm hearing a lot of rumors about the Sacramento Kings. I've heard about Buddy Heald possibly going to the Lakers and a deal for Kyle Kuzma. I'm hearing about Brandon Jennings from New Orleans. I'm hearing about, or Brandon Ingram, rather, from New Orleans. I'm hearing about a lot of names. Here's what I do know, okay? If you come back in the fall with pretty much the same team that you had in the spring, you're still going to stink, okay? The Sacramento Kings have not been in the playoffs in a generation, okay? A freaking generation. They have not been in the playoffs. So here's what I do know, all right? And I always say this. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The Sacramento Kings are broken. Fix them. That means you got to take chances. That means you have to roll the dice. That means you need to make moves, even if it's for the sake of making moves. Now, I said this last week. I said it last month. I said it back before the season began, and I'm going to say it again. You do not become a better team by losing good players and getting nothing in return. Example A, Bogdan Bogdanovich. Example B, 
although I don't have a crystal ball yet, Rashawn Holmes. What I do know is you can't come back with the same freaking roster that you had at the end of the season. Because if you do, once again, you won't be in the playoffs. So, the NBA draft, followed by free agency. It's time for the Sacramento Kings to get bold, make some bold moves, and change the makeup of the team. Because what they have right now is not working. Anybody out there disagree with that? It is not working. And it has not worked for a long time. Make some freaking moves. And that's my rant for today. And that's my podcast for today. Really appreciate you checking us out. If you listen via Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate the podcast, leave a comment, and don't forget about my video rants over on YouTube as well. Coming up on the show Friday, former NBA head coach made the huge shot back when he was in college for Bobby Knight in Indiana, Keith Smart, my guest on Friday. Thank you so much for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.